morning. My name is David, and I'm an assisting priest here at Incarnation Anglican Church. Our readings today contain some oldies but goodies, uh, but Psalm 111 is actually what I would like to devote some special attention to today. It contains what I consider to be one of the most worthwhile verses to learn by heart in all of Scripture, which is verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Consider this, a, consider this homily a meditation on Psalm 111, with our other readings offering a kind of aid to fill out our understanding of it. I'm going to reread the psalm. Uh, this will be from the New Revised Standard Version. We don't really have pew Bibles, but you are welcome to pull up your phones. Um, you can live tweet the sermon while you're at it. That's fine. Psalm 111 says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Wisdom in scripture usually means the knowledge or understanding necessary for doing the right thing at the right time. It is often used in parallel with terms like prudence and even justice. Think for a moment of all the problems in your life, in the lives of those around you, or let's just go for it, all the problems facing the world. How many of these problems could be resolved if we all possessed wisdom? Pretty much all of them, right? What would you do to obtain it? If we could put a price on wisdom, how much would you pay? We spend a great deal of money pursuing things that are adjacent to wisdom. We spend a great deal of money, um, tens of, to hundreds of thousands of dollars on institutions of higher learning so that we may acquire skills and knowledge. Or perhaps you devote a sizable portion of your income to travel, gaining for yourself all manner of experience and culture. Or maybe you make no small expense for social events to make sure you are always in the loop. But if you could somehow afford to buy wisdom itself, would you do it? Of course you would. Proverbs 3, 13 to 16 describes it thus. Happy are those who find wisdom and those who get understanding. For her income is better than silver and her revenue better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Sadly, or happily, depending on your point of view, wisdom is not for sale. But scripture is very clear about how you find it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What then is the fear of the Lord? 
At this point, many sermons would try to reassure their audience that this fear isn't really fear, and there's some value to that. But I don't want to distinguish fear of the Lord from what we normally mean by fear in order to reassure anyone. There is a healthy way in which the holiness and majesty of God should deeply unsettle us. But I do need to make a distinction in that biblical fear, like love, is not really an internal emotional state the way we say that in modern English, but is rather a type of action. To fear the Lord is to act in accordance with the belief that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Let me repeat that. To fear the Lord is to act in accordance with the belief that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. In that sense, fear of the Lord has a lot in common with the distinctive way the epistle to the Hebrews describes faith. God told Noah that he would judge the world for its sins with a flood. Therefore, by faith, Noah built a boat. Likewise, Abraham, by faith, obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set, and he set out, not knowing where he was going. And that is because he believed the promise God swore to him. By faith, Moses celebrated the Passover because he believed God was going to do exactly what God vouched to do. In all these cases, you could just as easily say that these figures acted by fear of the Lord almost interchangeably. To put it most directly, fear of the Lord is nothing other than obedience to his commandments. Listen to Psalm 111 once again. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts, it's a synonym for commandments, are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The psalm, in other words, is encouraging God's people to continue in faithful obedience to the Lord, which is the highest form of praise to him. Hence, verse 10 reads in the NRSV that those who practice it, that is, the fear of the Lord, have a good understanding. Uh, literally, we could translate those who do it. The fear of the Lord is something you do. That is, the, that is what the text reads. And it gets really interesting if you actually pulled up the NRSV and follow the translator's footnotes. Um, the reading, all those who do it, is based on Greek and Syriac manuscripts. The it seems to refer to the fear of the Lord. However, the Hebrew manuscripts use the more awkward, all those who do them. It's a plural. So what does that refer to? You have to go back several verses to get to a plural. And if you do that, the Hebrew clearly refers to his precepts, that is, the commandments, thus making the connection even clearer. The fear of the Lord is doing his commandments. If one would be wise, in other words, one must obey. Now, the idea of just being able to buy wisdom doesn't sound so bad, does it? But the psalmist isn't a finger-wagging scold who is out to enforce the rules, but a poet and a musician singing praises to God. In fact, reciting the psalm in itself is a spiritual practice intended to cultivate the fear of the Lord. How does one fear the Lord? 
Take a look with me. First, it means giving thanks. Verse 1, in doing so in the congregation. That is, corporately, in community. In our reading from Acts 2, the earliest Christians are engaged in exactly that as Peter preaches his now famous sermon at Pentecost. It is in exactly that context that God poured out his wisdom in the most significant and enduring way by pouring out his spirit. This is the same spirit that Jesus promised who would guide his disciples into all truth. It is in the concept text of corporate praise and thanksgiving in some that Christian obedience is carried out. And Peter set that standard on the day the church as we know it was born. The psalm also cultivates fear of the Lord by exhorting God's people to study the works of the Lord and delight in them. These are, of course, recorded in the scriptures. And again, Peter's sermon is instructive. Peter proclaims the most fundamental, the most redemptive act of God in history, that God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection, however, could mean any number of things if Peter had not also reviewed God's deeds and promises from Israel's scriptures what we now call the Old Testament. The resurrection is the culmination of a story in which God saves all of creation through his chosen people, Israel, now summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's that history that gives the resurrection its moral force. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, now all people must repent of their sins because it means the clock is ticking until the resurrection of all, after which is the day of judgment. The resurrection of Jesus, therefore, is the crowning work of redemption, or mighty deed, in the words of the psalm, that we should never cease to study. But it is not the only act of God in history. To grow in the fear of the Lord, all of God's mighty works, from the creation to the final restoration of all things, should be regularly studied, and such study should result in worship. As the psalmist says, we should delight in them. God is as God does. This is one of the two chief purposes of scripture, to know God as he has revealed himself through his mighty acts of salvation. The other purpose of scripture is to know how God expects us to live, what he requires of us. Thus the psalm also says, all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. I will not here rehearse all the do's and don'ts of the Bible. There are more than a few. I will instead note how the psalm characterizes all of God's commands. First, they are trustworthy. That means we can rely on them. Now, it's kind of odd to call a rule trustworthy. I know what it means for a person to be trustworthy. That means you can rely on them to tell the truth and and that that person will do what they say. I take the trustworthiness of God's commands to mean that everything God tells us is oriented to life and that the things he would have us do are good for us and they are for our good. When it says that they are established forever or that God commanded his covenant forever, it means that God's commands are not arbitrary and capricious and constantly subject to change. They are in accordance with God's perfect and unchanging character. In that way, the covenant between God and his people is closest to a marriage vow. When a couple marries, each party to the marriage promises to do certain things until they are parted by death. 
Despite the form that many modern, let's say, innovative marriage vows may take, they are not meant to be the solemnizing of a couple's sentiments toward each other. They are a binding commitment. To fear the Lord is to honor that commitment. So let's take stock of what the psalm is really saying. One does not first become wise in whatever way that might be conceived, and then one obeys the Lord. One obeys the Lord and thereby becomes wise. And that sounds a little scary to me, doesn't it? It sounds maybe even outright authoritarian. Like when I tell my children to do something, I don't want their first question to be why. I want them to respond, yes, sir. They want me to enlighten them first before they commit to anything. I want the reverse. I have no need for skeptics in my house. Thankfully, though, God is merciful. Jesus himself seems to have had a soft spot for skeptics, or at least skeptics of a certain kind. One of his disciples-to-be, Nathaniel, didn't mince words when Philip first told him that he had found the Messiah in Jesus. Nathaniel replies, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus seems to have enjoyed that reaction. <laughs> yeah, I like that, Nathaniel. Now there's a straight talker in whom there's no deceit. Likewise, Jesus has compassion on Thomas when Thomas finds claims about Jesus being alive again to be simply unbelievable. Instead of rebuking Thomas or refusing to show him the holes in his hands inside, Jesus meets Thomas right where he is and produces the evidence his disciple was looking for. Once Thomas sees and feels the Lord's hands inside, of course, his response could be described exactly as showing the fear of the Lord. He exclaims, my Lord and my God. Jesus accommodates himself to human weakness, in other words, and he has compassion on those who doubt. As the psalmist says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, yes. But the Lord does not stand aloof and wait for us to fear him enough before granting us wisdom as some kind of reward. He makes the first move. He comes to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your mighty acts that you have done to accomplish the salvation of your people. And above all, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins and for raising him again that we might live with you forever. We pray that you cultivate in us this healthy disposition to act in accordance with your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name.